Let's pray. Father, we have heard your word this morning, and I pray, Lord, that uh, we would hear from you. Uh, help my voice to speak for you. Uh, open, Lord, our hearts. And, Lord, this is a, a fairly tough text to go through, but there's uh, some glory in this, and also, Lord, some uh, encouragement for us. So shape us and form us, and by your Spirit, lead us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on January 1st, 1978, the entire force of firefighters in all of England went on strike. In response, the government called out the British Army to stand in their place. On January 14th, they were called to the home of an elderly lady in South, South London. Their mission, to rescue a cat stuck high up in a tree. The British Army arrived with their fire trucks with impress, impressive haste and valiantly with great care and cleverness delivered the woman's cat safely into her arms. As they began to drive away, the grateful woman insisted that the soldiers stay and that she, she might reward them with a spot of tea and crackers. After a time of friendly communion, the soldiers bid their fond farewells, and as they drove off with waving their hands and their arms, one of the fire trucks ran the cat over and killed it. <laughs> Yesterday's victory does not make us immune to today's defeat. No clearer can that be seen, not only in this story, but in our text for today. As Joshua 7 begins with the ominous word, but. That word is a signal that things change dramatically in the context of what has just happened. For Joshua and Israel, this was a dramatic change from going a great victory in, Jer in Jericho into the pain of defeat in Ai. And so we uh, open this morning where we left off last week as the dust settles in the crumbling walls of Jericho. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Camri, son of Zebdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Haven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy on the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Sherebim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. As we step into Joshua, we read that unexpectedly, after two 
great victories. The, the crossing of the uncrossable Jordan River and the breaking down of the impenetrable walls of Jericho, Israel suddenly tastes defeat. Up to this point, Joshua and the people of God had only experienced success in their mission to claim the God that was claim the land that was promised them. Following Jericho, the city of Ai seemed to be next in line. Though much smaller fortress than Jericho, Ai's location was strategic on the edge in the central ridge that runs throughout Canaan. Defeating Ai would mean Israel would hold all the hill country, along with commanding the route interior that goes to Jericho, which, which they had already overtaken. Compared to the mighty force of Jericho, Ai was a little bit more than an insignificant town, a wide spot in the road that should easily have been defeated. Yet Ai handily defeated Israel, sending Israeli soldiers running. Now, how could this happen? Well, right from the beginning of the book of Joshua, we have been reading of God giving people his instructions and what they must do in order to have victory. Joshua 1.7, he said, Be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to that all the law of Moses, my servant, has commanded you. Do not turn to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. And so in Joshua 5, God then also told them they would have good success if they submitted themselves to the authority of God. And in Joshua 6, he taught them that they would know victory if they obediently trusted in God's ways. But now in Joshua 7, we see what happens when they no longer followed those instructions. Success caused them to take their eyes off of God and look to themselves. Drunk with victory, they became lazy and self-absorbed. And as a consequence, the self-centeredness of their sin took hold of God's people. And they suffered both de defeat as individuals and as a nation. And in our text for today, we see the power of disobedience can cause self-defeat even when God blesses us with the victory of life that he has promised. Yesterday's victory does not make us immune to today's defeat. This all begins here in Joshua 7.2, where we read that Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. In the words that follow, we read that Joshua decided to launch an attack against the city of Ai. But we read no mention of God telling him to do so or any kind of request from Joshua to ask God how they should proceed. We don't know really why Joshua did this on his own initiative. Most likely he was overconfident from the miraculous success against Jericho, or possibly someone talked him into it because AI was a better and easy target. Nevertheless, this is out of character for Joshua. It's also striking that Joshua instantly took the counsel of the spies. The spies here are acting as military advisors, not giving him just information, but also making decisions on what they should do. Joshua 
doesn't pray about this. There's no gathering together and asking, Lord, how can we, what, you, what do you want us to do? But uh, immediately on their own, they act. And we're told shockingly that they're defeated. And they turn tail and run, and the little outnumbered city of Ai routes 3,000 of Israeli soldiers and chases them halfway back to Jericho. And there there's 36 fatalities, which is ironic. During the week of marching around the walls of Jericho 13 times, the whole army exposed to the arrows of the archers of Jericho, there was not one fatality. But there was 30 here, 36 men die. The name Ai in Hebrew means ruins. And it was certainly a ruinous military expedition. And this is a very sad observation at the end of this verse that the hearts of the people melted and became as water. This describes their response to their failure and defeat. Their morale was fractured, their strength was melting away. Proverbs 16:18 describes their situation. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Jesus spoke, spoke of this too in, in Matthew 23 when he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Yesterday's victory does not make us immune to today's defeat. The defeat at, at AI represents the battle that we fight all the time. And also the fact that we do most of the time on our own strength and we trust on our own resources. Leaving God's will out, God's wisdom, God's power, God's presence out of the decisions that we try to make. There's no mention here of seeking God in any way. And this is something that we have to continue to learn in these days. Amen? Proverbs 3 tells, says to us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. There's no self-confidence in the kingdom of God. Only total dependence on the one who rules and reigns over all the universe. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell on the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads, and Joshua says, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say? when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. What will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Have you fallen on, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. 
They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted to destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God, God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. So we read here how self-defeat can, sooner or later, become a spiritual victory. We kind of know this here from what Jesus' words when he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We are most powerful when we're weak in ourselves. Defeat can be reversed if we confess our lack of strength and surrender to God's guidance and to God's power. Joshua and Israel's leaders end up broken before God, tearing their clothing and covering themselves with dust, which are signs of humiliation, of grief, of mourning before the Lord. But what seems a little bit out of place is that Joshua seems to be a bit angry. He challenges God. He argues with God. He's asking why this terrible thing has happened. He blames God for setting them up for defeat. And the bottom line of the prayer to God here is, Lord, how could you do this to us? God lets Joshua rant, but then interrupts him in verse 10. And there's an interesting wordplay in here. Back in verse 7, Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, have you, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? In other words, God, this is your fault. You made us go across the Jordan River, and here we are now. And then in verse 11, God says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. In other ways, it's not my fault, it's your fault. You have transgressed my covenant. And you, I'm speaking truth into your life to know that it is all of you and all of Israel. God isn't very therapeutic in his response here. His language is blunt. He is saying, in effect, wait a minute, Joshua. You're not seeing reality. There's a reason for trouble and defeat. But you need to be willing to look, look for sin in the camp, in the family, even in your own heart. You've been willing to look for sin before, and you need to do it again. There's been a stealing, a lying, a covering up amongst us. Devoted things belong to me alone, and you have no right whatsoever to challenge me. You have broken my commandments to be careful to do all according to the law. You have not submitted to my authority. You have not obediently trusted my ways. You attacked AI without my counsel. Your behavior has brought you trouble. And in verses 14 through 18, God continues to explain to Joshua what he now has to tell the nation of Israel and what he is to do. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near your tribes, 
And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah and the clans of the Zerahites was taken. And he was brought near to the clan of the Zerahites man by man and Zebdi was taken and he was brought near the household by man by man and Achan the son of Carmi son of Zebdi son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken then Joshua said to Achan my son give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done do not hide it from me and Achan answered Joshua Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak of Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. They laid them down before the Lord. In these words, we read of the profound effect that happens to others because of the disobedience of one person. This process of investigation and discovery suggested the seriousness of Achan's sin and the corrosive, corrupting influence of the sin in the community of God. God said somebody had done something in secret that was going to affect the future of the whole nation. Somebody in disobedience had taken the things that were banned. In a deadly, serious issue, Paul, excuse me, God calls Joshua to go through the things what ultimately discovered in Achan's life. In Achan's public confession of sin, we see a pattern that leads to self-defeat for all of us. He says, first of all, that he saw these valuable um, articles, a beautiful robe, silver, gold. The second thing he does, he reclassifies those things. He calls them spoils. But they weren't spoils from the war of soldiers. They belonged to the Lord, and they were part of his treasury. The third thing Achan said was that he coveted them, and this tells us where his focus was, not on God for sure. He was thinking about himself and what he wanted, rather even being part of the rejoicing of this great victory they had just gone through. Fourth, he says he took the articles, which he would have... He took the article, excuse me, which would have made him covertly sneak them into the tent. The last thing he says is he hid the treasure, thinking he could get away with it by hiding his plunder. God had made it clear, clearly, 
in chapter 6 that every living thing on Jericho should be put to death and that they were of value to be dedicated only to the Lord's treasury. The point God is trying to make here is that everything belongs to him and everyone is being ruled over by him and he is to be honored by and with everything. And Achan's personal sin was more than just wanting more stuff. His greater, deeper sin was the blatant the blatant discontentment with God. That kind of discontentment surely wasn't going to be fulfilled by living on top of a hole in the ground with stolen valuables underneath yourself. Rather, his personal sin of discontentment was a discontentment with God, with his authority, with his rule and reign over his life. He coveted the valuables because he was not satisfied with what God has given him. Living with Achan's discontentment can cause us to covet the things of the world. God's word clearly defines coveting as idolatry, which means replacing the supremacy and centrality of God with something else we think that will make us satisfied. Discontentment is rebellion against the kingdom of God the rejection of God's rightful power and position in life that will cause us to covet the things of this world and ultimately lead us to fatal repercussions. Brothers and sisters, right now, in this world, we are experiencing this exact kind of discontentment in our world. Look what it does. When people are not content with God, that's what happens. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of this place is called the Valley of Accor. There was a, there was a severity of God's judgment that comes with discontentment with God. In refusing to submit the authority of God and trust him and obey him, Achan stepped away from God's promises and he stepped into God's judgment. It's not by coincidence that the root meaning of Achan's name is trouble. That's why Joshua could ask the anguished question, why did you bring trouble on us? And then in the sad final sentence, the Lord brings trouble, judgment on you. In the culture of our day, we are shocked at the horrific punishment that Achan and his family received for Achan's sin. Why such a severe punishment? Because sin is really, really, really serious. 
try as we might to see God's judgment here as being unreasonable or too far-reaching, the truth is God's word says it's really serious. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. The severity of the uh, judgment is an index of the enormity of the sin. This is why Jesus Christ sacrificed his life on a cross for our sins in our place so we might be forgiven and redeemed and restored back to the relationship with God that we had. Sin is serious business to God and it should be serious business to us too. Amen? (laughs) That's pretty hard to do. The problem is uh, it's really not serious most of the time for us. The problem is not about the punishment that Achan received. The problem is we don't see sin as serious as it really is. So we try to treat, uh, treat the cancer of sin with, with vitamins rather than something else. But God's word tells us the cancer of sin requires a dramatic, radical surgery, something like a cross. And that's what the Bible tells us. The wages of sin is death. There can be no ground of neutrality towards us in sin, brothers and sisters. Our problem is that we don't really believe that. We think we can kind of keep sin under control and limit its influence in our lives. But we don't realize that in reality, we will fall under its control just piece by piece, just quiet little piece by piece until it finally takes over like it did for Achan. The story is telling us that we can't have a temporary relationship with sin. We can't play with it. We can't just go so far and then cut it off because it will destroy us. The wages of sin is death. It's not so much about physical death as it is about this spiritual death, this death-like state that sets in our soul when we allow sin to control us with frustration and anger and anxiety and guilt and impatience and boredom and misery and a pandemic. These are the results of sin, and we cling to these. The bottom line for us is we cannot let Achan live. We cannot let Achan live. Israel acted decisively towards sin, and God calls us to do it in the same way. Just as Achan suffered the consequences of refusing to submit to the authority of God, so God's people as a whole were defeated, we see here, by refusing to do the same. In fact, today, our text tells us that this is not really a comparison. It's a cause and effect. In other words, if individuals within the family of God refuse to submit to the authority of God's word, the family of God as a whole will not obediently trust the ways of God. And the enemy will defeat us with the smallest armies. The enemy of our souls is our selfish, sinful nature. And just like Israel, we way too often overestimate our strength and underestimate the sinful nature we have. Sin is stronger than we are. We can't reason it out. We can't fight it out. This is the Christian life. We, we are always at war in this world, with the world, and with the devil, and with ourselves. 
even for those of us who have surrendered our hearts in for Jesus Christ, we have that battle. The Apostle Paul tells us that. Romans 7, the Apostle Paul, Christian Apostle Paul, writes, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but in my members I see another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, he says. We are to be about the business of battling sin until the moment we die. While we have been promised victory in Christ, that victory, though, is conditional on our passion desire for victory. Matthew 5, 6, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The danger we face in this battle against sin is the temptation to stop short or back off or slow down or settle for less than God has promised us. Hunger and thirst for righteousness should be the major mark we see in our lives. We must never get over fighting our sin. In fact, if we think we've got over it, we've lost. Until the war is over and God calls us home to this glorious place, we are to fight the good fight. Jesus himself even said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Yesterday's victory does not make us immune to today's defeat. The Bible tells us that the devil is prowling around, even at this moment, even probably around in this church, like a roaring roaring lion seeking to devour. He knows our hot buttons. He knows the soft spots of our underbellies that work against us and the weakness of our flesh and in our emotions and our hearts. While the devil has only so much power as we are willing to give him, our sinful nature is more than willing to do it. So we have this thing, just like Paul says, there's this war raging in our souls. But while we all know this, it's still hard. In the writing of Confessions, Augustine admitted as a young, immature Christian when he prayed, Oh God, give me chastity, but not yet. (laughs) Preaching and teaching on sin is never pleasant. When I do, I see the reality of my own sin all week. Thanks. It would be so easy to quit fighting and just give in. But brothers and sisters, we were not created for sin and defeat. We were created for holiness and victory. Some years back, the devil talked a young couple in a garden into trading the glory of God for the shame of sin. But that was then. This is today. That dog don't hunt here anymore. My, bi- my, my Bible tells me that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Because we are sinners who live in a fallen world, we will often know the agony that comes with defeat. But Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, you will have trouble, 
but take heart, I have overcome the world. Yesterday's victory <clears throat> does not make us immune to today's defeat, but in Christ, today's defeat can be tomorrow's victory. Revealed sin should not cause us to hang our heads. In Christ, God has not only revealed our sin, he's also destroyed its power. Jesus went to the cross to reveal the depth of our depravity and our sin, and then he, he died on a cross too to pay the penalty for our sins, so we might be cleansed of sin, healed from sin, so we might live with God forever. Hear the word of God from Joshua 7.13 in our text. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. The word consecrate here means to sanctify, to dedicate, to separate, to, to make separate just for the purpose of God. Basically, sec- consecrate means to separate ourselves from sin and give our hearts to God. God is saying to us today, rise up, stand up, move, separate our- yourselves from all these things that we're always fighting all the time. There are things in my people's lives that need to go for all of us. You will not see victory until you've removed them, or at least you're fighting against them. But, God says, if my people who are called by my name and humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. In Hawaii, because there's a time difference with continental United States, uh, NFL's Monday night football is actually played in the mid-afternoon there. But the local television doesn't show it until 6.30 at night. So there's a man named Lyle uh, Arkiki who's an avid football fan who lives on on an island. And um, he can't wait to watch Monday night football. When his favorite teams play, Lyle listens to the game on the radio which broadcasts it live. Then, because it might be his favorite team, he watches it on television afterwards. And Lyle says, you know, if my team, if I know my team has won the game, it influences how I watch the television show. If my team fumbles the ball or throws an interception, I feel sad, but I know it's not a problem. I think, yeah, it's too bad, but it's, it's okay. In the end, I know we win. In Christ, in the end, we win. We win. In Christ, we already have won the game. We've already won the war. All we have is battle. This should dramatically influence the way we live our lives. No matter what the score is right now, Jesus rose from the dead. Regardless how the game seems to be going right now, we know it's going to be victory in the end. But, but there's that word, we can't take that for granted. Sin is an enemy. It's all around us. It's in us. Sin is serious business. Yes, Romans 6.23 does say the wages of sin is death. 
But we need to always remember the rest of that verse says, but the, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And to that, I would say all God's people said, Amen. Father, we bless you today for the grace and patience and love and mercy that you continue, Lord, to pour into our lives. Lord, we are in tough times, but it could be tougher. And we know, Lord, in the midst of all these things that we're going through right now, that this is of you, and help us, Lord, to be cognizant of what's you and what's not not you, and also help us to understand what we need to uh, say and uh, what course of guidance we need for our future here. But in the midst of it all, Lord, we, we live in the moment here, and I would just ask for an anointing for us, uh, not us uh, specifically for leaving everybody else out, but we just pray for uh, Christians in these days that we might walk in a way that is worthy of you and that we might live for you. And in the midst of battles, Lord, we would know that our hardest battle here is against sin right now. But we know, too, we win. In the midst of that, I pray we would joyfully, Lord, live out our faith. We give you our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.